Welcome to Season 6 of Business Book Talk. Every week, we have a business book author talk about their book and discover why they wrote it. The conversations are casual in tone, but we try and dig a bit deeper into the subject of the book and discover the author's background and their core ideas. I'm sure you'll like this week's book, so let's get started. Hey everybody, it's Bob again, and I've got Stragility. Yes, you heard it right, Stragility. Excelling at Strategic Changes. We've got Ellen Oster on the line today and the co-writer of the book, Lisa Hillenbrand. And uh, to get started, let's just chat a little bit about Lisa. What's she doing? I mean, she's a pretty smart lady. She's doing some pretty interesting stuff. How would you describe her, Ellen? So Lisa and I met years ago, and she brought me in on some major transformations at P&G, where she was global marketing director. And she worked for years and years in all kinds of capacities uh, at Procter & Gamble and then recently shifted over to consulting. And because we had worked on strategic change through a whole bunch of different initiatives, we thought, wow, what a great opportunity for us to put our heads together and jointly write this book called Stragility. Nice. Why Stragility? Stragility uh, is actually a word that popped up on my screen when my brain was flying a bit faster than my fingers. (laughs) I was trying to type strategic agility and out popped this word stragility a few years back. And I thought, oh my goodness, this is such a lovely word uh, for the work I was doing on strategic change and really this idea of continually morphing and adapting over time and using today's change as an opportunity to also build tomorrow's capabilities for change. Hmm. Why why that technique? Um, you know, strategic change is, is- obviously important for an organization, but most organizations wait until either it's too late or there's a disruption in the market or they're faced with some other crisis and they say, oh, we better change. That is almost like a knee-jerk change. For you, having a continuous change strategy is a little different. Um, Why do you think that's so important? So that's a great question, Bob. So the idea is sort of like change fitness and the idea of, you know, for personal health, we kind of always have to be fit and that's the way to live a healthier, longer life. The same idea kind of applies to organizations in our view. So that we're not firefighting and um, crisis managing when we're doing change, but we really build the capabilities and we have kind of four key skills that we talk about in the book that enable companies to achieve those capabilities. So we kind of build the capabilities so that we can adapt and morph easily and quickly to win at change again and again. How should people approach this book then? Is it a type of book they should read cover to cover, or is it a book that they can kind of jump around in a little bit? So I think you can jump around in it. Uh, There's four key skills, sense and shift, uh, embrace our inner politician, inspire and engage, and change fitness. And together, those are kind of the sweet spot of stragility. But you go to your pain point. So if you're really struggling with people feeling, for example, they don't have a common purpose and there's kind of strategic drift, then you might start with sense and shift. If the politics are wreaking havoc in the organization, you'd probably go to embracing our inner politician. 
if you feel like people are sort of less than inspired about uh, the changes taking place, that's where you'd probably go to that inspire and engage chapter. And if when you look around your company, change fatigue is pretty evident, then you'd probably jump in on the change fitness chapter. One of the unusual chapters or sections is chapter six, and it says U.S. Navy applying strategy to your ship. That is amazing. You know, you, you think in, in a book like this, it's all going to be about business and corporate, and suddenly you're, you're dealing with the U.S. Navy. Yeah, so that's, that's just an awesome story because so often I think a, a criticism of change approaches is that, yeah, but it doesn't really work in our organization. We couldn't really do that. So the, the Navy story is just a great example of a Navy destroyer where really the head of a ship uh, Navy destroyer doesn't have a lot of degrees of latitude. And so how does someone like that inspire and engage and unleash the potential of everyone uh, on the boat? And so he was really trying to turn around um, that kind of change-fatigued organization where people really weren't putting their heads and their hearts into the job. And so he came up with this wonderful mantra, the best damn ship in the Navy. And, uh, and that served as kind of a guiding light for everyone on the ship to put their heads together to come up with their best ideas for improving how the ship ran. And it was you know, from things that were very complex in the engine room to even something as simple as rustless ship fasteners, which meant they didn't have to repaint the ship every six months. And so it's just a beautiful example of how when we inspire and engage, even within pretty tight parameters of constraints, people are usually ready to jump in with awesome ideas that can really improve how the company works, or in this case, how the ship works. <laughs> well, you know, it, it is fascinating because, you know, you, you get involved with different organizations and some organizations are very locked down and other organizations are much more free. And the ability for C-suite or senior managers to actually authentically sit down and listen to people and about what they're actually saying is probably one of the most powerful things you can do as a leader these days. Um, do you think that that paradigm shift in the way managers look at uh, their workforce is, is evolving more rapidly now, or do you think it's still in its infancy? That's a great question. I absolutely agree with you. There are pockets of excellence in different industries where that is absolutely occurring, and those companies are doing amazingly as a result. But I also think that faced with relentless external pressures, globalization, disruptive technology, ever-demanding customers, most C-suite change leaders don't choose to do that lock and load kind of tell and sell approach, I think, because they're necessarily most comfortable with it. I think it's really all about time pressure. It's so tempting when faced with an onslaught of never-ending changes to just say, you know what, good enough, let's go and let's just tell them what to do and make it happen. But what we see again and again with the companies we work for is this kind of idea of go slow to go fast, that if we take the time to help people understand the why behind the change, to ask for their input, to get their ideas, to listen, as you were just talking about, 
that's the way we really build these change capabilities so that in fact we can change more quickly again and again because those change capabilities are dispersed throughout the organization, right? It's not just coming from the top. The people around the organization actually get better and better at um, sensing and shifting within their own realms of control about what needs to be done, learning from what they're doing and optimizing really the potential of their teams and, and, and themselves actually. Well, you know, you said something very interesting there. It's better to go slow to actually be fast, and um, that is so true. How do how do people approach that, though? I mean, it, it's, it's there is so much pressure. It's, it's 24-7. You, you get to the office, and you get X amount of emails, and you get through those emails, or you, you basically, a lot of times you don't get through them. You just spend a lot of time organizing them to get to them later. And then you have a series of meetings, and then you actually get to start work three to four hours into the, the beginning of your workday, and then the workday ends, and you <laughs> relax, and then you go home, and then, oh, here's all my social emails and my office emails, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so, you know, telling somebody, say, yes, I know you're overwhelmed, but you have to go at it a little slower. How is that working for people? You know, that's an excellent question as well, because I do think we all feel like we're juggling way too much, really, and our bandwidth, uh, what we have left over is pretty narrow. So one of the things we can do, well, let me start with two, and then we can elaborate. Um, two, I think, that are really important. One is the prioritization piece. You know, so often we spend a lot of time in organizations on things that aren't really central to the strategic purpose of the organization and not necessarily priorities for that week or that day. And so helping people figure out what the priorities for this quarter, this week, this day is really important. You know, I know you work with a lot of small and medium-sized companies and even, you know, a, a quick Monday morning meeting or blast that just aligns everybody on, okay, Last week, here's what happened. And this week, this is really the top three things we're trying to get done in terms of the overall picture of the organization. And even end of, end of week meetings that say, what happened this week? Where are we on these things? What can we learn? What can we do better? So that would obviously be for the smaller company. For the bigger companies, you still have to have those priorities. They would just be cascading out you know, through different teams, through, through the leads in those units. And also, you know, the second huge piece is sunsetting the obsolete and getting rid of what we like to call the headbangers. So um, sunsetting the obsolete is about, you know, seeing what, what in the organization we don't have to be doing. Uh, and so often we spend time on things that maybe are drifting away from that central purpose. Um, so that's kind of the piece about sunsetting the obsolete and then the headbangers, you know, what are pain points for people that drive people crazy that may actually have pretty reasonable solutions that wouldn't take that long to address if we took the time to really tackle those issues. And sometimes those are kind of bubbling beneath the surface. You know, everybody's complaining about something, but we haven't really made it an official pain point, And so we're not really addressing it. So with those couple of ideas around prioritizing, sunsetting, and eliminating some of the headbangers, hopefully that does free up a little bandwidth so that we can take the time you know, to ask, ask people for their input and to really make sure people are aligned around, around the why for change, for example. Mm -hmm. 
Well, it's almost like uh, being in the moment is is a critical strategy for an organization um, because if you're so busy trying to deal with stuff and, and putting out these little brush fires, you don't realize there's a massive hurricane of a fire behind you that you're not even looking at. Yeah, that's so true. I think we're so busy firefighting um, and sometimes reinventing the wheel, right? So, so it's those kinds of energy wasters if we kind of take the time and and um, do the due diligence around really trying to address those. Those can actually free up a lot of time. You know, another one that we love is pilots. Rather than rolling something out across the organization, let's pilot it first on a small scale with more limited resources, work out some of the kinks, and then roll it out. And that too can save us a lot of time in the long run because we're not reworking a whole system rollout. We're just reworking the pilot before we roll it out. Makes a lot more sense. I wanted to talk to you a bit before we get too deep into the conversation about the word strategy. I think it's overused these days. I think it's under understood. Uh, For you, how do you define strategy? Yeah, that's a great, great question. I think for us, the strategy is really that fundamental driving purpose of the organization and how the organization kind of sits relative to competitors and its key differentiators relative to competitors. Uh, It's a very dynamic term, and that should always be shifting, right, in this age of globalization and fierce competition. So there will be like a persistent thread around, typically around what a company does. Um, But the specifics of that are actually going to shift over time with different players entering the markets and new customer demands and, and new product rollouts. So I think lots of companies spend too much time on that three to five year strategic plan, which is obsolete usually before before the words of the plan get ironed out. <laughs> so yeah, a much more dynamic term is the way we would see strategy. Hmm. Yeah, uh, like an evolving never-ending stream of, of, of decisions. Yes, anchored around a common purpose. That's a great, we should write that down. That's a great definition. <laughs> <laughs> now you've got this wonderful graphic in the book and it, it pops up again and again, uh, the circle with the, with the four sections and in the middle you've got uh, stragility, sense and shift, then you've got embrace, inner politician, and then change, fitness, and then inspire and engage. Can we go over all those and define those a little bit as well, please? So sense and shift is this idea of being proactively attuned to those external game changers that might shift our whole markets, right? So that's the sense piece, right, is really proactively tracking those external game changers that might change everything about what we're doing. The shift piece is more about optimizing internal capabilities and that's about course correcting as we go, as we were just talking about keeping it dynamic. So that's kind of that sense and shift piece is uh, paying attention to those macro trends like technology, for example, that might disrupt everything and then leveraging what's working well and addressing what's not working. A great example of a company that kind of got blindsided um, is BlackBerry, right? Which we're also familiar with in Canada. And so 
BlackBerry was kind of focused on Nokia and what was happening with more stylistic changes. And meanwhile, Apple was working on the hardware and came out with basically a Mac and a phone, right? So it's those kinds of disruptive game changers that we want to be paying attention to for that sense and shift piece. Um, should I go on to? Uh, oh, yeah. Let's, yeah. let's okay. do them all. Yeah. Do them all. All right. So embracing our inner politician is so often in organizations, and we see this again and again, politics are kind of taboo. People don't want to talk about the politics. People even whisper about the politics. <laughs> uh, and so this is about, we find again and again that by really directly uh, embracing the politics, we can move change along so much more quickly. And so you might say, well, how do I do that? You know, politics seems like this kind of scary volcano about to explode. How do I do that? So we have a couple steps in the book, but I'll just highlight a few. The first would be to really look for those key influencers. And what we mean by that are those go-to people, those opinion leaders who can sway how others think about the change. Uh, and within that space of who are those key influencers, to look for supporters of the change, those people who seem really enthusiastic about the change. And that might also include a few sponsors, like looking above us a few levels and saying, who could be a sponsor for this change that would bring credibility? But what it also includes uh, the skeptics. And you know, so often in change, we walk away from the skeptics because we're sort of afraid what they might say. But what we found is that there are actually two types of skeptics, positive skeptics, who are people who are pushing back because they have really valid concerns about the change that we actually need to hear versus negative skeptics who may be more resisting for personal reasons, personal impact reasons. So with both those groups, it's really important, as we were talking at the beginning of the interview, to listen, right? Listen to those positive skeptics to find out those underlying concerns that may actually save us the change, the change from derailing later on. Uh, and also listen to those more emotional concerns. You know, maybe it's someone who says, you know, I'm worried I don't have the right skills for this new technology shift, or I'm afraid my awesome team is going to get broken up as a result of this change. Because some of those typically we can, we can incorporate into our change in ways that really um, bring those people out and often make them powerful change leaders within different constituencies that may be more pushing back. So that second principle is all about embracing our inner politician and kind of working through those politics. Hmm. The third one is about inspiring and engaging. And that's about moving away from that tell and sell approach and instead helping people understand the compelling why behind the change probably with the business case, but also with stories and a mantra. So we talked about Global Port. Oh, sorry, we talked about the best damn ship in the Navy, right? Um, as, as a mantra, uh, a large port had one as smooth sailing. P&G is used, consumer is, is boss. Free the children, which you guys may know out on the West Coast in Vancouver. You know, their mantra is me to we. And so it's great to have a mantra that kind of anchors the company and anchors every change that's happening within 
the company. That's kind of the inspiring piece, the business case, the stories, the mantra. Then there's the engaging piece, which is really about this idea of unleashing the ideas and potential of change leaders throughout the organization early in the process so they can offer their input. Uh, a little story here, which uh, is, is a wonderful example of this, is a company called Terranet, which is also based in Canada, in Toronto, medium-sized company, and they had to do the um, gut-wrenching task of cost-cutting. And you think, wow, how do you get employees inspired and engaged around cost-cutting? <laughs> and they were very clever, actually. So what they did is they built kind of healthy competition around number of ideas the employees, it was a company of 300, the employees would contribute and they got teams into it. They did build it into their personal scorecards and their incentives, but they also gave away like Tim Horton coffee cards. And so in the first year, they were hoping for 150 good ideas that would save them money. And they got 300, nearly one per employee, which was phenomenal. Second year, they said, you know what, we want to go for kind of bigger saving items. So they said, you know, we're looking for 10 great ideas that'll save us $10,000 each. And they got 22 and each was worth more than 10,000, I think. And so it's just a wonderful example of this inspire and engage piece and how if we ask for input so often in organizations, you know, everyone in the company really has good ideas for how to make, <laughs> how to make the work go more smoothly. So that's the inspire and engage one. And then the last one is that change fitness piece we were talking about at the, at the beginning of the interview. And so this is this idea of a couple different principles. One is would be that sunsetting the obsolete and prioritizing. A second would be doing pilots, right? So how do we change, achieve change fitness is do those pilots and run water through the pipes so we work out some of the problems earlier. A third one, which we haven't talked about yet, is really thinking about managing the energy of the organization rather than so much of a focus on how people spend their time. So if people, we know that people, we all function better when we take micro breaks and we take the vacations where we have, and even we stop and do some deep breathing if we're having a stressful day. And so that piece is more at the personal level and having, but having change lead, leaders make space for that for people, right? So if you can do a meeting outside and take a walk, even in Toronto when it's, uh, or Vancouver, when it's pretty cold out in the winter, go do that, right? Because that helps fuel our energy. Uh, so it's this idea of change fitness is also about how we manage our time and more importantly, manage our energy uh, in our daily work. And then the last one that I would mention there is this idea of after action reviews so that we build in the discipline of asking at the end of every change project or at every milestone in a change project, what's working, what's not working, how can we do this better? And what do we learn that we can reapply in other spheres? Yeah. And the reason I really wanted to dig down into those right just now is because that's the whole structure of the book. It, it's around these four um, strategies or approaches. And I wanted to know, is it something that you can um, 
skip around in it and do, you know, immerse inner politician and then jump to change fitness? Or is it kind of you have to do them in that particular order? Absolutely not. You know, I think a lot of organizations, when we start working with them, we actually start with the politics piece because they have the brilliant strategy. Often they have the brilliant strategy, but they're just struggling with execution. And when we get in there, we realize, yeah, it's all about kind of roadblocks and minefields and turf wars around the politics <laughs> and that we kind of need to diffuse that and work through that. So, you know, in that case, we'd be we'd be working with the key influencers, as we talked about, both the supporters, but also those skeptics to find out really, you know, what's the underlying why behind some of this resistance. And then we might jump into more of the inspire and engage or some of those pieces of change fitness is part of what we hear about. Sometimes the pushback is just, you know what, I'm overwhelmed. My, I'm already juggling three changes. The reason I'm pushing back on this is not because it's not a good idea, but just I can't put any more on my plate. So then we kind of move to the change fitness piece and say, okay, what can we sunset? How can we streamline what's really priority here? So absolutely to answer your question, I think you can jump around and start where it makes sense. You know, if you're looking for more, a more of a refresh, you might start with that shunts and shift piece and say, you know, we haven't done a real, uh, a real good scan of the external environment lately. We've been so busy firefighting. What are those potential competitors coming up on the horizon? Or more internally, what's working, what's not working, and um, digging for some of those root causes that, to get rid of some of those headbangers we talked about. Oh, yeah. And they can be so frustrating because, you know, a headbanger is something that comes up again and again and again. And just doing something like that can give you the, I don't know, the courage to move forward. It's like, oh, my gosh, that thing's been bugging me for three years or six months. Now it's gone. Oh, now I can see clearly now because that's the way the human mind works is if there's something that bugs you, it's going to be nibbling away in your subconscious all the time. And it's critically important to have organizations that uh, have people that are truly focused. Yeah, a great example of that is um, KFC, and, and they were having a whole bunch of issues with their franchisees, and there was a lot of pushback, and the company was at that time kind of spiraling downwards. And just by asking the employees, step into the shoes of the president, and what would be the three top things that you would suggest and it was quite simple things like we'd like to introduce new menu items, sort of like McDonald's does, sort of like Starbucks does, right? And and but that was a huge frustration for all of these franchisee owners all around the world, actually. And and you know, they'd be tailored to different regions, but just to have some flexibility to introduce what they think makes sense in their markets while still keeping the overall kind of product line of KFC. And there were other things, you know, like, please, can we can we build in um, bathrooms that are easier to clean and keep tidy, right? Because, <laughs> you know, we don't think about it, but fast food for a lot of people is also about the bathroom. And so that becomes a headbanger, right? If you're a franchisee owner and, and the bathrooms aren't really suited for fast and easy cleaning, well, then that's going to be a problem. And so... Absolutely. You know, getting rid of those headbangers. And we also see in, often in sales and marketing organizations, there's paperwork you have to do and there's unnecessary paperwork. And nobody's really thought of, often 
that's a cumulative process where people keep adding on what else people need to be reporting in on, but they don't stop to say, what can we get rid of here? And so unnecessary paperwork can make people, getting rid of that can, is another great headbanger that can make everyone <laughs> much happier. Well, I think also so, uh, anything unnecessary, like unnecessary meetings, unnecessary this, unnecessary rules, um, it, it kind of, we're, the world's evolving into a more uh, conscious, or at least hopefully, a more conscious um, workplace. And part of that is uh, you can't treat your employees like they're delinquents. And so you have to trust them to do things. And I think that organizations that go and, and, and are uh, upfront about that saying, hey, look, at you know, here's the snack room. Uh, we know sometimes you don't have time to go to the store. Here's a shelf full of snacks and things and tea that we will put um, put back in place. Here's the cost to us for buying those products. If you grab some tea, please put a money in the kitty here. And we trust that you won't not pay. And uh, the first time I saw that was in a, in a big high-tech company. And they had done that because they used to have a free store. Like it was basically a 7-Eleven. Uh, and everything was for free because it was just a way to keep people in the company working. And uh, they found that people were just hoarding stuff and taking it home and, and living off of it. <laughs> so I said, okay, we're, we're going to have to, like, we'll give them a great deal, but there's got to be some value attached to it. So, you know, yeah, sometimes those experiments and ideas may seem to fail, but you can always, like you said, look at it as a pilot project. It's okay, how can we fix it? Instead of just like scuttling it and giving up, it's like, come on, we might be able to tweak it to make it work because a lot of times those ideas that evolve through input from an organization become a pillar in that organization five years later. And and they become part of the company's legend. You know, I love that example. So I don't know if in that example they did, in fact, ask the employees, well, what could we do? That would have been great. That would have been what they should do, right? Yeah, so, they hadn't you read know, your book. This isn't quite working. Yeah, <laughs> this isn't quite working. Um, what would you, what would you all suggest? But then that that become you know they have, people would have so much more passion around it if if they had generated the idea versus if suddenly it's just kind of coming down from corporate or coming down from the top that you know no more free food now you have to pay for it. But if they actually explained the why, you know what, this is costing us a lot of money and here's the last month and a half of inventory and what, what we actually went through for a company of X number of people, you know, that would be explaining the why and then asking for input. And if they came up with a solution, even better, because then they're going to be passionate about it and, and understand where it's coming from versus exactly what you say you know, just a rule coming down saying, okay, we tried the free food thing and either now we're not doing it anymore or this is how it's it's going to be modified. Yeah, that's a great example. Yeah, and, and I think if you, you know, if you do get something like a information from up, up, up high saying, oh, this program's been canceled, they don't tell you why. They say the program's been canceled. And you say, well, then you're pissed off. So it's an actual accumulative negative effect. Yes. And then, yeah, as you say, cumulative negative. And then that happens again and again and again, right? And meanwhile, you're busting your tail at, in, in your team or at your desk, still trying to do what you think makes sense for the organization. And yeah, that's, that's where you really start to get that gap between um, people feeling passionate about what they're doing and kind of being passionate towards the organization. 
Yeah. Do you think that the uh, most organizations have a real problem with uh, retranslating their communications? And, and let me define that a little bit. It's like you, you have a C-suite meeting. They make some very high-end decisions. They use all their C-suite acronyms. And then it goes <laughs> down to uh, senior management. And then senior management has a series of meetings with their own, their own little set of, of, of vocabulary. And then it goes down and down. By the time it gets down to the people that actually need to know what the heck they're talking about it's so scrambled or it's full of a bunch of acronyms or misinformation that it's dysfunctional more than functional yeah i totally agree with that and and you know that's where having that clear strategic purpose the mantra just so what is this really about oh it's about uh innovation is our lifeblood or it's about the consumer is boss right so people know here's my focus and the stories, you know, there's wonderful scientific research on how stories are actually processed by our brains. And stories, we actually, they, they get lodged in a different part of our brain. I think it's the ambigula, if I'm right. And um, we actually remember them much more than we remember data and facts, right? That's why if we see a big PowerPoint presentation, let's say 50 slides on why the company should do something, we may hardly remember any of it. But wow, if there's a few customer stories about why is this change needed, or internal stories, we'll likely remember those stories weeks and even months later. And so that's where I think story is an underused uh, component of communication. And PowerPoint these days is an overused component, right? And, and if we understand how the brain works, we could probably do quite a bit less PowerPoint <laughs> kind of telling at people and much more story and igniting passion in people. And then the third piece is probably making it two-way. So often in organizations, communications, as you say, come down from the top, come down from the C-suite, are in this kind of cascading one-way process. And having that feedback loop that cascades it back up to say, you know, here's what we heard. When we shared this idea with our teams, here's what we heard. And what does that mean for how we should be thinking about this change? Or how does that change execution? So, yeah, I, to I completely agree. There's a lot of work that we all can still do around communicating change in organizations. Well, you know, in an organization, who should be champion, championing the uh, the communication? Should it be the Marcom department? Should it be the, the, the graphics team that you use to help develop your website? Because, I mean, they have a specific set of skill sets, and, and they're very focused on communication and clarification. And, you know, if you're in the C-suite, you would never think of going down to Marcom and say, oh, look, at we've, uh, we'd like somebody in the one of our writers or our freelance writers or, or somebody in the graphics department to come up and sit down and we're going to pitch you about this change and then can you create a communication tool for us to disseminate around the organization never happens that way by the time it gets to the person that's got the responsibility to actually communicate it they're not given any tools they're not given any advice they're saying hey here's the new thing it's in memo format. There's no descriptors. There's no story around it. And then they're expected to figure it out. Incredible waste of time and super ineffective. Do you think um, that's a good strategy moving forward? Yeah, I love that. You know, so often in companies, they spend so much time on messaging externally to customers. And and you're right. You know, often those the, the marketing teams are awesome at coming up with that 
catchy mantra um, or that compelling story that really helps people understand what the change project is about, just like what the product is about. So content wise, I think you're, uh, that's brilliant, you know, to have to shift those internal marketing capabilities inwards and, and get some input from those folks on, on the content and, and even how to, you know, you can even have logos and imaging that's associated with the change, just like you would for an external product uh, and the stories. And then in terms of process, we talked about the key influencers earlier, and we always like to have the key influencers really engaged on that communication piece. So typically in organizations, they kind of <laughs> take the org chart, you know, and circle people on the org chart who should be engaged in this change. But so often the key influencers may not be the people, only the people on that org chart. And so who are those informal uh, go-to people that are critical to bring on board with the change so that the change really has positive momentum and, and um, generates positive buzz, right? So, so in terms of content, I love that idea have it with the internal marketers and, and, and then in terms of process, those key influencers and asking people, you know, what, do you understand the change? Do you understand? Because so often in organizations, there was some recent data, I'm trying to remember who it was, um, whether it was McKinsey or Towers Perrin, I can't remember where the data came from, but they were talking, I think it was like 70% of people don't spend most of their time on, on the organization's priorities. Only 30% felt that they spent the majority of their time on the, on the organization's priorities, <laughs> which says that huge you know, that issue of the translation piece. So I don't think that's, you know, on purpose. I think it's just, I, I don't really understand, as you say, all the acronyms or nobody's really taken the time to help me figure out what does that mean for what I do, right? How does, how does that really get integrated into my work plan if this is the overall kind of shift we're making? And so... The communication piece is so central and I think often, as you say, quite deficient really in change and, and there's lots of opportunity with skills we have right inside the organization to improve it. Yeah, or, or, or people, you know, even if you don't have an internal marketing department, you can definitely um, ask somebody that's in charge of marketing and say, well, who do we use for doing graphic design or who do we use for writing? And they say, oh, we use Joe here. He's awesome. You should chat with him. Or the PR department. There's, that's all they do is think about words all day long and how to spin things. Absolutely. Well, TELUS did a great thing when they started their close to the customer program. You know, we put customers first. You've probably see those, seen those ads. Is they were they run all their even high level executives through this program that puts them on the customer front lines. So, you know, how do we shift a company to we put customers first? Well, we put them on the front lines so they see what happens to the customer, you know, the customer who comes in with, you know, the the charge, the internet charge from overseas that's $300 or the poor, you know, the poor working mom who calls up and says, I can't really stay home for eight hours today to wait for the, the guy to come fix my cable. And so by seeing those customer stories firsthand, they've actually made some awesome shifts around their, you know, their phone, their cell phone policies around how they do servicing. And I think that's another way to really make the why of change come to a lot, come alive is, you know, have people really see that firsthand. So if you're trying to shift towards 
a, a stronger customer orientation. What What is it really like to be a customer for this organization? What's one thing that an organization can do today um, to, to move in this direction? Great question. Let me do a personal one and an organizational. Personally, I would say take your team and ask them what's working, what's not working, and why, and what should we do. Like engage right now, this week, today, what are the pain points, what are the headbangers, and see if you can knock off a few. Um, for the organization, I think it's that go slow to go fast. Don't tell and sell the change. You know, it's so tempting with these relentless pressures, but really take the time to explain the why and ask for input. Where can people go to get more information about the book? Uh, do you blog? I'm sure Lisa blogs as well. What's the best way for people to reach out and, and learn more? Perfect. So absolutely, um, pick up our book. It's on Amazon and Indigo um, here in Canada and um, Barnes & Noble in the U.S. Visit our website, stragilitychangemanagement.com. And yes, we do have a blog going there. Uh, and then, you know, we're also very avail available for speaking engagements, workshops, consulting, coaching. We're happy to partner with you um, on any of the changes you might be facing or undertaking. Uh, one last question. Uh, I run into this every now and again, and I call it the doppelganger effect. Uh, basically, you'll, you'll sit with managers, you'll be chatting with them, and then at the end of the meeting, you, you just say, oh, you know what? You just need somebody exactly like you, your doppelganger. Um, and then you wouldn't have any problems. And every single person says, yeah, that, that's what the problem is. Not understanding that that's not the problem. The problem is, is they don't know how to manage um, in an effective way in the sense that uh, they need something done, but because they get the results they need, but it's not done the way that they would have done it, they don't like the results, which sounds a little insane, but many, many managers and leaders have that problem where... Yes, I needed this done. No, you didn't do it the way I wanted. So undo it and try again. You know, I think that's one of those situations where we do need to give people the opportunity to run with their ideas. It's much less about the how, usually. You know, we're looking for the results. We're looking to have that winning organization that can... Um, achieve success every time and there's you know for every change there's lots of different ways you can go about achieving success there's also lots of ways you can end up in failure but um, ownership for the change is huge for passion commitment and and long-run success and I think loosening up those reins a little bit and letting people run with their ideas and giving them the opportunity to really see whether something works or not works, and even giving them the opportunity to fail, because sometimes our most powerful learnings come from failure, even though we, we don't often give much room for that. Smart failure, you know, failure, failure that we learn from versus failure that keeps happening again and again for the same reasons. And so, you know, I, I do think we can we can loosen the reins around the how and and focus more on the results and let people take ownership and take charge of change because we're we're all change leaders if given the opportunity basically. <laughs> We've been chatting about the book Stragility: Excelling at Strategic Change. I've had Ellen on the line today. 
Thanks for the chat. It was wonderful. It was wonderful. Thank you so much. Awesome questions. Thanks for listening to the show. And don't forget to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Like us at Facebook forward slash business book talk. Follow the host on Twitter at Bob Garlic. Visit the website businessbooktalk.com for show notes and lots of other great interviews. See you next week.